we join you for a moment of prayer. God, we do thank you that this is your world, that you created every atom of this universe, that you made all of us, and that you care about every atom in the universe and every human heart. Um, God, we thank you for these summertime months, for a little extra room to breathe and be. We thank you for woods that are thick and green. We thank you for blue waters that even here in the north are warm enough to swim and play in. And we thank you especially for the beauty of lively, growing spiritual lives. We thank you for the lives of all the young people and young adults that are in this place of worship today. And we pray uh, your guidance, your faithfulness, your hand of blessing on each and every one of them. And for all of us now, Lord, as we open your ancient word, we pray that you make us young at heart, eager to learn. We are all just young kids in your school, Lord Jesus. We open ourselves to your spirit here and now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, the sultry part of the summer is upon us here in Illinois in July. Sometimes we call these the dog days of summer. And here at Elmer's Christian Reformed Church, uh, in, in the, the month of July, July, we are celebrating these dog days, um, learning from a character, a heroic character in the Old Testament whose name was Caleb, which means the dog. The dog days. So this is not awesome. Like, do you guys call anybody in your group dog? I mean, this would not be an encouraging name, right? It was not an encouraging name for the young Caleb, but it stuck with him. Now, Caleb, more than 3,000 years ago, was a contemporary of Moses, the prince of Egypt that God raised up and then used to set his people Israel free from slavery under Pharaoh. God brought them across the Red Sea, parted the waters. He led them through the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. God brought them to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and gave them the Ten Commandments. It was there that the Israelites made the golden calf, but we won't talk about that. God is awesome. Sometimes his people are less than fully awesome. And then God brought them north from Mount Sinai. What Scripture says is an 11-day walk from Mount Sinai to a place called Kadesh Barnea. This is, this is a place name that you are going, going to have to remember for today's message. Repeat after me. Kadesh? I'm trying to break it down for you here, okay? Repeat after me. Kadesh? Barnea. Kadesh Barnea. All right, we're good to go now. Kadesh Barnea, 11 days north of Mount Sinai, walking with millions of people, my goodness, was meant to be a staging area, a launching pad for the people of Israel in preparation for them to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan that God had promised hundreds of years ago to Father Abraham. From this launching pad, from the doorstep of their new, of their new country, Israel sent 12 spies out from Kadesh Barnea to examine what kind of land this really was. Forty days later, these 12 spies came back. Ten of them gave a negative report, a report that was full of fear. It's impossible for us to move into this land. The people are too scary. The walls are too big. 
two of these spies, Caleb the dog and Joshua the golden right-hand man of Moses, they brought back a positive report and told people, now is the time. And with trust in God's promises, we can do this. So the question remains, will the people of God go for it? Or will, or will they, they not, not go, go for it? Will, become, become, will they become, become the people of promise? Or will they become the people of fear? Are they on the edge of something awesome or the verge of disaster? The doorstep of destiny or the cusp of catastrophe? Now, most of us, at some point in our lives, particularly in our younger years, our young adult years, we face some kind of epic choice. Maybe, Maybe a, a personal Kadesh Barnea. Have you, Have you had, had a moment like this where you felt like God was putting something audacious in front of you? Maybe a path for your life, a direction? And the question is, will we or won't we walk with God? Will we become people of fear because it's just too scary going into the unknown on this path that God is inviting? Or... Would it be possible to be people of faith by God's grace? Will we be content to go through life seeing with merely human eyes? Or will we allow God to dream something new through us and give us the vision of Jesus himself? Superhuman sight. Which will it be? In the scripture, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, break down these two paths. Lisa is going to lay down these two choices in front of us. Lisa Cavazzoli, our director of care and community. As we dive more deeply into the life and times of this great character, the dog, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Good morning. Nice to see everyone. So when we read about Caleb, we realize that not only was he a man of great faith, but more importantly, he was a man of great faith in a great God. Caleb's faith rested on his understanding of God, not in his confidence of the Israelites to conquer the land. The challenge for us today is this. Do we have a faith that is courageous like Caleb's? Or do we have a faith that is comfortable? Is our faith based on what we think we can humanly accomplish in this world? Or is it based on the supernatural power of God? As we start to ponder these questions, I also want us to be aware of a very important truth. That our lives are profoundly affected by the choices that we make. The choice to go here rather than there, the choice to do this rather than that, all pile up to shape a direction for our lives. There is no choice that we make, however, that is of greater importance than what we choose to believe about God. As the famous American pastor and author A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God, it is the most important thing about us. So in our story, after the scouting expedition and the good news and the bad news is reported, Numbers 14 goes on to describe how this bad news spreads out amongst the wider Israelite community 
at Kadesh Barnea, located in the desert of Paran. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us just to go back to Egypt? Now, if you haven't noticed yet, there is a pattern. It is worth stopping right here to make sure that we take note. Grumbling is a way of life for the people of Israel. As we meet them in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this pattern of anxiety and grumbling is one of the most recurrent themes of this people's life. They grumble about being stuck as slaves in Egypt, and then when God frees them, they grouse about being on the loose in a boundless desert. They grumble about not having enough food to eat, but when God gives them manna, they grumble about the lack of variety. When God later gives them a huge supply of quail meat, they grumble about that. And when God leads them up to the edge of the land, the land filled with milk and honey, that it is a wonderful opportunity for agriculture and herding. The Israelites grumble that suddenly the land is too difficult, the competition is too tough, and the giants are too scary. I think it's worth noting here that it is perfectly normal for you and I to complain here and there to each other and certainly to God. But if we're not careful, we can easily get into the bad habit of complaining and grumbling, where eventually we can find fault in every situation. Before long, we can find ourselves grumbling about everyone and everything, about our friends, our families, our children, their teachers, their doctors, our places of work, our church. We too can become like Israelites, where grumbling can be a way of life. Numbers 14 goes on to tell us that Moses and Aaron, they even fall face down in front of the crowd as they try to get the Israelites to change their mind. Caleb and Joshua, they even plead with the crowd and they tear their clothes and say to the entire assembly, the land we pass through and explore is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Do you ever wonder where people get their courage? How could Caleb and Joshua be so sure? How could they be so brave in front of such a crowd of angry, complaining Israelites? The whole assembly was talking about stoning Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. Imagine the terror they must have felt. I don't know about you, but this is a pretty tough situation. It was such a tough situation that even God was fed up. Yes, God was fed up. Our God was angry. God was fed up because the Israelites saw every situation is either too hot or too cold, too hard or too soft. 
No condition was right for these people, no menu sufficient, no lifestyle adequate, no plan appropriate, no leader was wise enough, at least not for now, for the children of Israel. Amidst a pretty staggering array of God-supplied provisions and possibilities, they are a culture of complaint, and they perpetually see the downside, the half-empty part of all, most, everything. They yearn for the good old days that never really existed, at least not the way they remember them, and they keep railing against God to do more, to do better, to do differently, while abandoning their own commitments to God's commandments and going back to their idols. Friends, these are some of the bad habits that we can get into where nothing is ever good enough and our glass is always half empty. And God grows increasingly weary of it, so weary that he considers striking the Israelites down with a plague and completely destroying them. But God is the Lord of redemption, and he forgives the Israelites, but not without discipline. The Israelites would have to wait 40 years before they would have another chance to enter into the Promised Land. In fact, none of the adult Israelites who started the journey with Moses actually lived to enter the Promised Land. And even Moses himself, who was destined to see the Promised Land atop a mountain, would die before ever crossing over into it. None of the original generation of the Exodus would pass through the waters of the Jordan into the land of milk and honey, except Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua, these two were granted the exception. Why was that? It was because when confronted with threatening, difficult, even humanly overwhelming circumstances, when surrounded by a culture of complaint and a fellowship of fear, these two individuals chose to do the rare and remarkable thing that authentic disciples in every generation are called to do. They put their trust not in what they could see in their current circumstances, not in what others were saying, not in their own human strength and sufficiency, but in God's power. Caleb and Joshua put their courageous faith in God. The real difference between these two spies, Joshua and Caleb, and the ten was their perspective. Joshua and Caleb looked at the task at hand from the perspective of who their God was and the supernatural power of God. Their God was the God who triumphed over Egypt. Their God was the God who triumphed over Pharaoh and all the other gods of Egypt. Their God was the God of the impossible, the God of supernatural powers. Their God was the God who parted the Red Sea. The ten spies only looked at the task at hand and their own human ability to accomplish it. The giants were just too much for them to tackle. Their God was too small and their faith too comfortable. According to numbers, Caleb seems to have been 
the leader in this. Caleb was the representative from the tribe of Judah. It was the lineage from which the famous giant killer, King David, would eventually come. And it was the family line from which a vastly greater king would one day come, ascend a hill, and put his complete trust in God and vanquish upon the cross sin and death, the greatest giants of all. Do you think this is just an amazing coincidence? Or is it just another radiant sign that there is someone infinitely wise and ultimately sovereign who writes the story of this world, even the part that includes your life and mine? It does include us, you know. God is still writing his story about you and I and this church, and we are invited to play a part in it. Each of us stands at our own Kadesh Barnea today. Each of us looks north to the hill country, to that place where there looms large a challenge waiting to be faced. The following is a story of a young man of faith who followed God with courageous faith in spite of his own brokenness and insecurities. William Wyman Andrus was born June 10, 1927 in the small town of Miles City, Montana. Miles City is one of those wonderful American towns that had one general store, a part-time mayor who also played on the town's baseball team and served as the town's doctor. William grew up very poor and endured many hardships as a young person, but he also grew in his faith in God. And he sought a lot of solace from God's love and Jesus' love of the poor. As a teenager, William moved to the Garden City of Missoula, Montana, where he attended high school and quickly learned that he was really good at sports, football, and track, and that he was super smart. So he enrolled at the University of Montana. In his junior year of college in a physics class, after William had just aced a physics exam, his professor, who in the past had attended Harvard University, called William to the front of the class and said, William, young man, you're going to go to Harvard Medical School. I have called them and written them on your behalf, and they have agreed to give you a full scholarship. Well, needless to say, William was in complete shock. His parents had never been to college, much less Harvard, and he had never dreamed of ever becoming a medical doctor. But after spending some time in prayer, some time with God, William heard that quiet voice in his soul that told him to go, to go and make that drive from Missoula, Montana to Boston, Massachusetts to attend medical school for 12 years and become a cardiologist. This was Williams Kadesh Barnea. This was his hill to the north to climb and to face with courage. He was willing to face the giants at Harvard Medical School. He was willing to face his own insecurities. He was willing to say yes to God. If William had said no to God, he would never have become a prominent cardiologist in Seattle, Washington. 
he wouldn't have ever been able to help create the first coronary care unit at Highline Hospital in Burien, Washington. He would not have been there to save my best friend's dad's life at his first heart attack. He wouldn't have been able to provide so much care to the poor, to those who couldn't afford it. He never would have married my mom, and he never would have been my dad. William said yes to God's call on his life. Even though he felt scared and ill-equipped, he went forth on his courageous faith in God. William passed away December 27, 2014, and he would have been 90 years old this year. So friends, what is your Kadesh Barnea? What is God calling you to do with your life? What is God calling you to do with your life with courageous faith? We all face a crossroads in our life, and some of the crossroads we get to face together. It could be said that as a church, we are facing our Kadesh Barnea as we move into our next season of congregational life together. Hey friends, uh, I 100% affirm this idea that Lisa just laid before us that we as a community, as a congregation, are nearing a Kadesh Barnea, a crossroads, a place where God may be asking us together to dream with him some audacious future. This church has been there before. When this church started 80-some years ago in a living room in Bellwood, uh, this family, the Tessmans, they went for it and said, yes, we'll do this. We'll start a church. When Catherine Tessman turned over the keys of her congregation to the Christian Reformed Church in North America, our denomination, she couldn't have known what it would become, but she said, yes, God, I trust that at this crossroads you have some hope and future for this group of people. When our congregation moved from Bellwood to Elmhurst in the early 60s, again, our congregation said yes. And when this church discerned that God was inviting us to build this place and move, again, our congregation said, yes, we'll do it. It might be crazy. Hey, Karn, would you be so kind as to open the curtain? I forgot to ask for this earlier. So our congregation for a decade plus has been building. I mean, building this place, acquiring the land, developing the land, dreaming God's dream after him. As we worship here today, the last piece of the puzzle, some additional parking just outside this east window, is nearing completion. Now, I'm not telling you when it's going to be done because I have no idea when it's going to be done, okay? Just to the south of what will be our new parking lot, there is a memory care facility that is also in the final stages of completion. When these two parts are done, as far as I can tell, the, this corner of South Elmhurst is built out. There is not much margin left. I remember the days, Pastor Bert, when we owed $13 million. Today is almost down to $4 million. Thank God for that. We are freer and freer from the yoke of debt. But now, after more than a decade of building out, I believe God is inviting our community into a season of building in. We have gone very wide. We have expanded our borders for a season. 
a necessary season. And I believe there is now a whisper in the air for us as God's people in this church to go deep. Both are absolutely necessary. Deep and wide. Building out and building in. If I were to compare a congregation's life to the life of a human being, like as an individual, if you live 90 years, that's a good, healthy, long life. A really healthy congregation, really healthy, well-led, can maybe live 200 years, double a, a really healthy human life. Okay? If that's true, this church is right smack at middle age. Know what I'm saying? I say this with some understanding because I just turned from 45 last month and I feel right smack in middle age. Now, a life well lived goes roughly like this. In the first few decades of your life in young adulthood, the world calls for you to put forth some bold, positive energy to create a name for yourself to put a stake in the ground, to create some space, to make your place in the world. Like, this is what the first half of your life, if you're there, that's what it should be about. And then somewhere around midlife, you have a crisis. Well, maybe not a crisis. But something very naturally happens where you're invited into a season of reflection, thoughtfulness about the first part of your life a recalibration period where you thoughtfully name and own everything that you've put out there in the first half, and then you get retooled for the second half of life. And now in the second half of life, which Lord willing, maybe we are just at the beginning of entering as a congregation, there might be less activity, less the youthful vigor might be gone a little bit. I feel it is for me. But there's this desire for more significance. The second half of life, please testify if you're there, is about perhaps less frenetic activity, but more focus and more significance and deeper investment. And the main concern becomes passing on the good gifts that you have received to the next generations. Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church has said yes to God's audacious invitations during the first half of our community's life. I heartily amen all of the things I mentioned earlier. My goodness, what a great legacy we have. But now, we are rounding into a new season and maybe a different type of invitation, an invitation for greater significance and depth and where the main concern becomes passing on good gifts to the next generation. As maybe a little Holy Spirit whisper that this is true when we started planning this message, I had no idea our high school youth group would be up here testifying about the Colorado Challenge. Had no idea until the service started that these young men from Los Angeles would be in the room today. Like we need further proof that God wants us to be turning our face to passing the torch to the next generations. Just open up your eyes and look at either side of the building. During the final two weeks of this series on the life of Caleb and the dog days, we are going to turn our attention to the wise examples of Joshua, in particular next Sunday, 
and then Caleb again on the final Sunday as they show us how to live a full life connected to God in their older years. They totally did it when they were young spies. They went for it. They said yes to God. And they were still doing it when they became old codgers. Is that still a word, codger? There's got to be a better word. When they were old folks, by God's grace, that can be the life of Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church too. Led by the Spirit, walking Jesus' path to the very end. Will you pray with me? Oh God, uh, your word says that we are saved by grace through faith, and we believe your grace is indeed all around us. It is the air we breathe. We can't escape for it from it. And God, all you ask for us is just that little cooperation of opening the window of faith in our own souls and in our community life so that the wind of your grace can come pouring through. And, oh, God, help us to open that window and keep it, wide, keep it open wide enough so that it not only blows in, but blows right through into a world that needs you and your presence and your touch so much. God, you have blessed this congregation for decades now. We pray that you will continue to be a faithful God to us and keep us wise enough and bold enough to keep saying yes to you no matter what you ask of us. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody in the church said, amen. Hey, folks, this is the time in worship where we give our tithes and our offerings. We give to God what is first and best because he gave us what was first and best of his own, Jesus, his only begotten son. Um, our youth room band is going to play for us. Uh, enjoy the music and be generous because God has been so generous with